Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert-Kennedy. And this is Teddy. Hey, Ted. Yep. Uh, today's topic, it's the showdown everyone's been We've waiting for. We've all been waiting for it, Everybody's Quinn. Everybody's been... All, all, I was going to say all season. We don't have fucking seasons. We season just keep going because this shit never stops. The, the showdown, the throwdown, are you ready to rumble? Ladies and gentlemen, it's poop versus cancer. Dun, dun, dun. Pretty exciting. It's a cage match. No holds barred. No holds barred. Uh, our guest uh, is Dr. Dibwakar Devar. Uh, he is a professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and a medical oncologist and hematologist. Uh, he specializes in the management of advanced melanoma and the development of early phase studies to test novel immunotherapeutic approaches to treat advanced cancers. What Quinn said. Bang. Boom. Yeah, he's um he's doing some he's doing some okay things. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh again, I feel very lucky because we talk to a lot of folks who are just so above and beyond smart, but not just above and beyond smart, but like applying themselves in this way where you want to go, what do I have to do to give you the tools to do your thing? Right. Like, like please we, just keep doing that. I will do anything yeah, to help well, you. How do we divert just like aircraft carrier money? Yeah, yeah right. And resources to, to that thing? Because it's just like, what? I just always think these questions of, and knowing that science is incredibly difficult and, and the no offense to these people, they will fail. And then they'll just pick up and try something else right, because right. that's how science works. But also like, what, what if he does it? What if he, you know, what if it succeeds? And that's just the mind blowing. I mean, it, w- it will at some point he, he or somebody on his team or somebody who will be on his, uh, uh, that team in the future, you know, everything seems real crazy. And then one day it, it happens. That's pretty awesome. It's, yeah, it's, it was very, um, very cool to listen to this man talk because it, uh, like, gets this like enthusiasm in you going when you're thinking about what they're doing uh that like holy shit one day one day maybe we can just there won't be cancer holy shit <laughs> indeed let's oh, go talk yeah. to dr devar our guest today is dr devarker devar and together we're going to find out what your gut uh has to do with cancer treatments uh dr devar welcome thank you for having me yeah, thank you so much for being here. We're very excited to have you and to talk about this. Let's uh, start just by uh, letting us uh, know who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, so I'm a medical oncologist. I primarily treat patients with melanoma. And I do that at the University of Pittsburgh, which is, you know, unsurprisingly located at Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. And uh, the scope of my practice involves uh, treating patients with, you know, advanced cancer. Uh, and giving them a variety of different treatments, but primarily centered around immunotherapy. Along with that, I also do some research, and uh, the scope of my research entails, uh, firstly, uh, drug development, so testing new molecules or new antibodies from drug companies in patients. Um, the second aspect of what I do is uh, evaluate third-generation immune checkpoints, so this is things that work even after the frontline drugs don't work, and the frontline drugs were the stuff that people who just want a Nobel Prize help develop. And the third thing that we do is we look at, which I think is the topic of this conversation, we look at the role of the microbiome, specifically the intestinal microbiome, in mediating responses to immune therapy. And we try and see whether by modulating that microbiome, whether we can actually affect responses even when 
traditional immunotherapies no longer work. Fascinating. Yeah, I love it, it. It really is wild. I can't wait to dig into that. All right. So, uh, uh, doctor, basically what we like to do with these podcasts um, is talk about something that we think is very important that we think uh, our listeners want to uh, be engaged with and uh, want to help do something about. So um, we're going to, uh, t- you know, set up a little context and sort of figure out uh, what specifically we can do to help you along and help everybody who's trying to kill cancer uh, uh, along uh, with some specific action steps, if that sounds good. Sure. Awesome. So, uh, doctor, we usually start with one uh, important kind of fun question. Instead of saying, tell us your whole uh, life story, we like to ask, doctor, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. The thing, depending on who you ask, some people might argue that I'm not that vital to this survival. <laughs> sure, but I want to. Uh, I I want you to be bold, be honest with us, have some fun. So I think our group, uh, and especially it's a group. It's not you know it's not just me as an individual, uh, but our group. Uh, I think we're asking some very important questions. There are very few people asking these questions. So I think. Um, what I think we're doing is we're asking very not only an important question, we're also asking it in a very important context at a very important time. Uh, because we now have, you know, for the very first time in the history of treating cancer, we have mm-hmm. drugs that actually can take cancer that is advanced and put it into remission. And it's it's kind of incredible, when, you know, for people to say that and mm-hmm. for other people not to be surprised. Even as recently as five, six years ago, there were no treatments that could put advanced cancer into a remission. And it wasn't really until relatively recently, you know, that we've had successful immunotherapy. And it's also important to qualify what one means by successful immunotherapy, because we've been trying to treat cancers with immunotherapy for for as long as we've been treating cancer. Sure. And what we now have is successful immunotherapy, meaning there is a drug that's commercially available, multiple drugs made by several different companies now, but Drugs that are commercially available that you can get at any cancer center in the country, and it's not just in this country, it's in any other country as well, in which whether you're in Australia or in Alabama, you can get this drug, and this drug, if you have a certain set of cancers, it works extraordinarily well and puts the cancer into remission. But uh, there's a tremendous financial cost to these these drugs. There's also actually a side effect cost, because even though the drug's cure cancer, they can sometimes produce very, very serious long-term side effects. Overall speaking, they're good. And that's part of the reason why, you know, this is the first Nobel Prize that, that has actually been awarded for a treatment that has actually directly improved the lives of patients. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wow. think about every other Nobel Prize in the history of medicine, every other Nobel Prize for medicine has been awarded for a scientific advance. Sure. There's never been a Nobel Prize awarded for a scientific advance that has actually resulted in a treatment. And that's, you know, that's something that maybe science geeks care about. But that's huge. the truth is that, that's yeah, huge. You know, I mean, these guys, Tsuko Honjo and Jim Allison, you know, helped discover a drug, a pathway that resulted in a drug. In the case of Jim Allison, he actually discovered the drug. And so, so, you know, Honjo, they helped develop the drug that actually now cures cancer, right? It's incredible. So, so now we are left with two things, you know, so if, in the people that the drugs work in, you've got side effects, you've got financial toxicities and stuff like that. But more importantly, what, at least what we do, we are focused on why the drugs don't work. And what we've now discovered is that there are many reasons why the drug, these drugs don't work. But one reason appears to be the composition of the intestinal gut bacteria. Right. And that's, yeah, that's what I want to dig in today, because I feel like, you know, kind of migrating into our, into our context here, I, you know, 
Americans at the very least have been bombarded in the past 10 years with, you know, eat this yogurt, take this because it gives you probiotics and now there's prebiotics and this is how the gut works. And at the same time, we're finding out that the gut is a very, very, very complicated and confusing place. And and that is to say, I I, I feel like people thought, oh, we, we have our shit figured out a little bit. No pun intended. Um, but uh, what, what we're finding out now is how much we don't know about the gut, about the microbiome and, and how different each of ours is uh, from one another, how they're built, how they're affected by our genetics, by our environments, by antibiotics, by, again, uh, overmarketed yogurt, and, and further by cancer treatments and how they in turn affect cancer. Um, it, it feels like we're at the tip of the iceberg with that stuff. But at the same time, like you said, it's interesting because now we can start to really start to actually say, well, 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 wait, maybe these things are affecting each other. Maybe this isn't just not working for some reason. Maybe we know enough about it to get started. Just, I guess, just to back up for, for folks, again, your, your gut isn't your, just your stomach. It's, it's your mouth through your esophagus, your stomach, your intestines, and it's filled with trillions of, of microorganisms, you know, more, more bacteria than you'd ever believe. I think they say it's like 13, 14 pounds of bacteria. And most of it's good, and they help with nutrients, and they protect against pathogens, and they run your immune system. Uh, when they're out of whack, you, you get a whole load of issues. But the, the question for today is, you know, how does cancer and cancer treatment relate uh, to the gut? Uh, of course, some microbes promote pr- promote cell proliferation, which is great, or, or which is not great for cancer. Some protect against cancer, which is great. Cancer, of course, also isn't one disease. So again, this whole thing is very complicated. Um, and then, like you said, immunotherapy is working for some patients in an incredible way and some not at all. Um, and, and the question is, could those success rates with improving them or where they are now come down to the interaction with the gut? So, so doctor, if we could take a step back, I'd, I'd actually love to hear how, how you came into this specific uh, perspective, this adventure. It, it sounds like it's more from the cancer side than the gut side. What was your path to start to take on this challenge? I guess it's important to acknowledge that, you know, in, in, in science, nobody ever, you know, at least in biology, nobody actually wakes up one day and figures out that this is something is important. It's always, you know, insights from what other people have done and trying to expand on that in certain in certain states. Right. And so in the context of, you know, these modern immunotherapies, I think people began to ask this question as to, you know, we know that certain, immu- certain cancer treatments are affected by by gut microbial composition, and the gut microbial composition exerts immune effects. There's systemic immunotherapy in the context of cancer. Is that affected by the gut com- the composition of the gut microbial systems? And so there were these two seminal papers that got published about two years ago now. And uh, it's worthwhile, you know, thinking of these two papers. The first paper was by Laurence uh, Zivergé. Mm-hmm. And Laurence uh, Zivergé, in 2016, what they were doing is they were collecting uh, stool samples, all right, from patients, all right, mm-hmm. who were receiving immune therapy. Okay. And what they showed was that the immunotherapy appeared, the effect of immunotherapy in mice appeared to be affected by A, the use of antibiotics. And B, uh, did not have any effect in mice that were grown in germ-free facilities. Meaning, when you grow a mouse in a germ-free facility, the mouse doesn't have a native colonization by, by, by bugs. Oh, right. And so when, when mice were treated with antibiotics or grown in germ-free facilities, they did not respond to, 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 to immune therapy. 
Not not at all? Not, yeah, in the context of the model, not at all. Right, fascinating. You know, it's fairly easy to get mice to eat shit. So when you reconstituted <laughs> the uh, antibiotic, the bacterial system by, you know, essentially gavage, oral gavage with particular bacteria, you could reconstitute the immune response. And it's a pretty elegant model, right? You have you have no response to the immune therapy mm-hmm. in a in a in, in the control model. Right. And then in the in the in the in the mouse that you actually try and treat with the immune therapy, you you reconstitute the gut intestinal system by either they did three different controls, but they uh, the major one is that by by oral gavage with the particular bacteria, the response was reconstituted. So that clearly suggested that there was a link between the intestinal microbial composition mm-hmm. and the effect, at least, of this anti-cancer immunotherapy, in this context, CTLA-4 blocking. And what was interesting was when they took feces from patients who had durable long-term responses mm-hmm. and gave it to mice, the fecal transplant from the humans actually reconstituted a response in the mouse. No way. So that's that's kind of cool. Yeah. So that's human wild. shit. Yeah, human shit cause you know cures mouse cancer, right? So that's that's that's, that's wild. So they, so so to make sure I'm getting this right, they they gave that for, they took patients who were responding, long-time patients who were responding to immunotherapy, a human patients responding to immunotherapy, and gave it to those control mice that were raised in a clean environment, and they responded? And the mice had disease, uh, had, had tumors that shrunk, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Right. That's that's wild. So that was one paper. Then that's the got other one of the craziest paper, things that's ever been said on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, the fecal transfer was additive with the immunotherapy. And then he did some very elegant work and, and isolated it down to the actual bacteria that he thinks is important Right. And that is mediating this effect. And that, that, that was my be- next question: is how, how much have we have we drilled down to discover? Okay, so what is the differentiator here? So, firstly, that's that's very hard to do. Right? Sure, there are many ways to try and think about how to do it. But what he did was he he essentially looked at the bacterial species that appear to change. His argument was that the the species that is probably mediating the effect is the species that is probably changing the most from time zero to two weeks or one week. So the, the species that is mediating the effect must be the species that is increasing in abundance over time. Right. What we know, at least as of 2016, when these papers came out and they were published and they got a lot of interesting hits, was that there appears to be differences in the growth kinetics of these mice and that these growth kinetics can be can be eliminated by co-housing and most likely is due to the effect on, at least in Tom Gieski's data, a particular bacteria, bifidobacteria, and that this administration of this bug, along with, it appears to control tumor growth in mice in the melanoma mouse model, mm-hmm. and that this synergizes, is, has an additive effect with immune therapy. And then Lawrence's data suggesting that in a different uh, immune therapy, in this case, CTLA-4 inhibitor immune therapy, a slight, a different bug appears to mediate the effect. But again, fecal transfer from human patients who, with, who right. are long-term responders appears to result in cancer control in tumor-bearing mice who are so treated. Is this true in human cancer specimens? Right. So we now have three papers that have come out in the last 18 months 
uh, and have gained, you know, gotten a huge amount of press. And these three papers look at primarily human data in human cancer samples, that is in, in human patients who are treated with immune therapy. Intestinal microbial composition of respondents appears to be sufficiently different from non-respondents. Hmm. What is interesting is that all three papers say, suggest that the bacteria in question is very different, meaning that all three papers define very, very different bacteria as being associated, as being responsible for the effect in responder patients. Right. And that was my next question is, if you could enlighten us a little bit on, I guess, which cancers this is being tested on, because obviously, I mean, for, I think everyone is well aware of this at this point, cancer is not one disease. It is so many, so right. many infinite number of different versions of it, and it's different for everybody. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated to hear about that. That differentiation must be frustrating, but at the same time, very enlightening. Right. And that brings to us, that brings us to an allied question, which is, if this difference is real, and it's very important in science for us to say that, that you know, in science, it's, 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 we're very concerned with what we know, but we're also equally very, very reflective and contemplative of what we don't know. Sure. And the question is, if this is a real phenomenon, can this be modulated to actually affect treatment outcomes? Right. The end game. Right. So is it so, so? So what are the steps? Yeah, what are the steps in between there? What's what? What so is there, next there? So that that's 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 a great question. So there are many steps, and I would say that the first thing is that the end game is not just one factor. The end game isn't just is the microbiome a valid target for therapeutic manipulation. I think that's the big, you know, big twenty thousand the twenty thousand foot question. Right. And the answer is, I think, obviously yes, because many biopharmaceuticals are involved in trying to manipulate the microbiome to different ends, you know? Mm -hmm. So clearly the, the micro, the intestinal microbiome is a setting in which therapeutic intervention is certainly a possibility. Now, it's, 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 it's the point being that uh, this is a very, very important error that should be studied. Whether you believe it or not, it's, a, it's something that should be studied in ongoing immunotherapy trials. So that's one of the first things that I think this phenomena suggests. And I think in response to that, major biopharmaceutical companies have started collecting, sampling the intestinal microbiome longitudinally in clinical trials that they are doing. And so, you know, Bristol-Myers, uh, uh, Merck, and other, other major biopharmaceuticals are doing this. And so that tells you that I think not only academic investigators such as us, in our group, but other investigators, uh, even in, even biopharmaceuticals, have caught on to this idea that this is an important area that needs to be studied. So that's, I think, one take-home point. I assume you're saying that because you're like, are you guys feeling pushback while doing this research? Are you... No, 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 no. We're not feeling pushback. It's a, if anything, it's it's an endorsement, right? Okay, I mean, okay. if you're doing this and the biopharmaceuticals are like, you know, well, whatever, then you know, it's it's you're just working in isolation, but. The fact that biopharmaceuticals are taking notice and they are actually attempting to study this as well suggests that everybody realizes that the data that's being collected is, you know, at least at this time, it's, it's, it may be very premature uh, to make any major, major conclusions, but it's certainly some, a factor of interest. So that's, I think, the first fact, the first important takeaway, that this is probably going to be an important sideline or main actor. We, we don't know that 
but it's going to be a very important factor that determines how drug development happens in the next couple of years, maybe even longer than that, at least in the context of immunotherapy. And it's a factor that people are studying. So that's a very important, important fact. And it seems so valuable. You know, I, I think, and we try to do a good job of painting a comprehensive objective viewpoint for folks, which is like immunotherapy has been incredibly successful in some ways and in some ways not effective at all. And in some ways it has been, you know, dangerous for the patient, but it it is very clear that there are reasons, whatever they are, and we're so far from totally defining them, much less for each individual, that it works for some folks and it works for, and it doesn't work for others or, or it works for some cancers and it doesn't work for others. Um, So it does seem like things like this, if you, if you're getting indicators it, it certainly seems worth pursuing. And it's like you said, it seems like the drug companies feel that way too. Yeah. And the second thing that's interesting is that, you know, it's sort of, there are a couple of lead actors that are involved in trying to do in interventional clinical trials in this space in the context of cancer. So there are at least several different companies as well as in academic investigators, including our group, that are attempting to try and see whether modulating the intestinal microbiome can affect the outcome of cancer immunotherapy. And so I think that's the second wave of, of what, you know, what's, what's happening. Uh, these clinical trials obviously differ very significantly in the, the nature of the trial, the details of the trial, the details of the intervention, the patient populations, and so on and so forth. But what you're seeing is that a couple of different companies are getting involved in this space to try and see whether companies as well as academic investigators to try and see whether or not you can actually make, is there an intervention that you can do that actually changes the way cancer patients get treated? Hey, it's Brian. Quinn's in the bathroom. I got a quick favor. Every podcast you listen to begs you for a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Here's why. Not everybody listens on Apple Podcasts like you might not be doing right now, but 70% of our listeners do, and most podcast listeners do. Uh, And the top charts are a huge source of even more new listeners. So here's the deal. Some unholy combination of downloads and ratings and reviews drive up those top charts. And we like being on those top charts and getting new listeners. So we need your help. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts right this second, it's super easy. It'll take five seconds. If you're staring at the episode screen, just swipe down all the way down at the bottom. And then there's a little library button. Hit it. And then tap our show. Scroll all the way down to ratings and reviews and, and just do it. There's five stars. Just hit hit the stars. And then and that takes like a second. And then and then you can get hit hit the review and then write a review. And that takes like five seconds. I'll we'll, I'll wait for you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for doing that. It's very this is very exciting and very overwhelming. <laughs> like there's just like an endless possibilities of where of where to go next. What, what what are we looking at for the next uh, year or, or five years? Or, or is it, you know, not really known yet because it is so early? But, you know, I got to ask, of course. Well, I think the first thing that you're going to see is there's going to be a lot of regarding the first part, which is I think that, you know, a lot more groups are going to come out and start saying that, okay, we think that this particular bacteria is important or that, but that particular bacteria is important or this particular bacteria is important. So I think there's going to be a lot more noise. But yeah. in that noise, as the noise is being generated, there will be, you know, just as, as a result of noise, there's going to be a lot more interest on data harmonization. Because what tends to happen when you have noise is that somebody needs to sit back, step back and say, let's try and make sense of this. Mm-hmm. Right. right. 
So I think what we are trying to do along with our collaborators, we have many collaborators, is we're trying to get a sense as to what the, what the factors are that make a difference in mediating the signal-to-noise ratio. So is it important to know what people are eating? We think so. Right. You know? uh, is it important to know how much exercise people are doing? We think so. Mm-hmm. Is it important to know what kind of medications people are taking? We think so. Mm-hmm. How do you try and analyze these data? Do you just draw graphs and try and plot these together? Turns mm-hmm. out that's a little hard to do when you're dealing with things that are numbered in the trillions. Yeah. <laughs> and so what did this no. argument was a, you know, some kind of computational approach, you know, typically involving things like neural networks and stuff like that sure. to try and make sense of how you get very, very diverse disparate data points and correlate things that may be very, very overly related, you know, variables that are overly related, too tightly related, that traditional linear analysis is confounded by multicollinearity, and try and relate these diverse disparate variables such as cancer response and receipt or non-receipt of immune therapy and medication use Mm -hmm. and microbial composition using, you know, advanced computational techniques such as artificial neural network analysis. So I think that's one of the first things that's probably going to start happening. There's going to be many, many data sets, a lot of noise, and then there's going to be some harmonization. Mm-hmm. And with harmonization, then we're going to get a better lens through which we can look at these data sets and make some sense as to the factors that are important. And sure. some factors will win, some factors won't. And we don't know what factors will win, but you know, let's try and collect as, many, as much of this as we can. So I think that's one, that's one thing that's probably going to happen. Sure. That's yeah. It's 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 fascinating, but it feels good to know it's in good hands. Painting those sort of waypoints yeah. along the way, those measurement sticks. What 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 do you feel like quickly are sort of the biggest obstacles uh, you guys have run into or or foresee running into over? Again, let's limit it. You know, the next six to eighteen months. So I think one of the factors is actually, um, and in many ways, these are things that other people have already answered. You know, so where this research was done first, you know, in the context of inflammatory bowel disease, in the setting of inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, again, the same thing. You know, the people in the IBD world have been doing this for a far longer time than we have in cancer. They started five, six years ago. And what they very quickly realized was you really needed large international groups. Sure. You know, so there's, essentially speaking, there's an American group and then there's a European group. In the American group, uh, they are, everybody, you know, just pools their data and they try to analyze this. And then they're experts in computation, they're experts in microbiological, ecological analysis, and then they're experts in immune, um, immunology. And they try and figure out what's important, what's not important, and, and, and how to rationally design clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And then in Europe, there's the same thing, except in Europe, you know. So I think what we need what we probably need in the next six to 18 months, and one of the one of the barriers is there probably needs to be uh, groups that convene to say that this is what we're going to do, mm-hmm. and these are the techniques that we're going to try and test, and these are the approaches that we're going to try and test, but let's try and test this in, an, a, in a fashion that is non-overlapping so that patients and resources aren't wasted, so right. that we aren't duplicating efforts that other people are, are already doing. And so that science, you know, science is imperfect. You know, it's not as straight and narrow as one might always imagine. There are lots of zigzags. But trying to minimize the zigzags probably helps 
conserve resources because the ultimate resources are patients' lives. Right. And what we'd like to do is try and do this in as efficient a fashion as possible. Sure. So hopefully something that we get done over the next six to 18 months is actually, uh, you know, the formation of groups that that, uh, help corral disparate investigators together and and assign, you know, unique tasks so that we can all work in a forward direction. Right. And at least in the same direction. Um, So I guess that segues pretty well into, uh, this is a little bit of a different conversation because obviously we usually talk about things that can affect or are affecting everyone. Uh, Cancer is obviously affecting so many people. Everyone has a story or knows someone or is someone. And I mean, obviously our listeners aren't all in line for immunotherapy, which is great. Uh, But we do have a lot of patients and survivors and some doctors and scientists and senators and plenty of advocates listening. Um, we'd like to say our listeners take action with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. What do you feel are the questions uh, or directives we should be asking of our our representatives to fuel science like this to help push your your mission along? The the first thing is we have actually been very fortunate in that some of this research has actually been funded by uh, the National Cancer Institute. So mm-hmm. you know when when you read the news, it's very depressing, right? Like there's all sorts <laughs> of craziness that happens, but. But one thing that's very interesting, and this is, I think, true of Republicans and Democrats alike, is that one of the very few things that almost everybody seems to agree on is that funding research and funding the mission of science, and specifically the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute, mm-hmm. is something that has surprisingly, you know, in these times, actually got very broad bipartisan support. And actually, the NCI budget has actually, currently, it's 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 $26.9 billion. And that's $5.7 billion below the 2017 continuing resolution level. But it is, you know, a fairly significant amount. Sure. And you're right. I think that was interesting. I think Trump proposed uh, cutting that greatly and, and Congress said no way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually that's actually very reassuring because, you know, everybody complains about Congress, but Congress has actually done very well by the NCI because even though the NIH budget has been cut, the NCI's budget, that is the budget of the National Cancer Institute, in the current fiscal year for 2019 has actually been increased mm-hmm. by $79 million. So it's $5.74 billion, wow. And that's a $79 million increase over the fiscal year 2018. So thanks to, you know, everybody, Republicans or Democrats or independents, uh, the NCI's budget is healthy. So I think everybody, you know, should take stock in the fact that... sure. Our elected representatives, you know, regardless of stripe or, or or party affiliation, appear to be cognizant of the mission of NCI. The second thing that's, I guess, is is useful is is this re- this research, cancer research, is very very important. But uh, this is also a very important area that for people to understand. In that, if you're a patient with cancer, if you know somebody with cancer, you have a, a relative. Who is dealing with cancer? It's 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 impossible to to underscore how important it is that you are seeing a medical oncologist or a surgical oncologist or a radiation oncologist who is affiliated with the National Cancer sure. uh, Center, there's a comprehensive cancer center, because that's where a, a large bulk of these research happens. Right. So one of the things that you, you you know you take away from all of this is that you know sure the investigators at the University of Pittsburgh may not necessarily agree with the investigators at the University of Chicago, 
but may not may not necessarily agree with the, the investigators at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. But what's unique about all these three places is that they're all comprehensive cancer centers. And if you think back to the founding mission of the NCI, which was to designate these centers as being important areas for research to happen, one of the one of the missions is to ensure that research happens at the level of the comprehensive cancer center. So one of the reassuring features is that even in these times, in these troubling times, and, and with so much disagreement between people, you know, even in science, but what's what's fascinating is that that this research is happening as a result of NCI dollars. And people disagree on, on, on relative, you know, minute things, but the NCI's, NCI's mission is being fulfilled because our clinical trials and this research is being supported by NCI dollars. Sure. So helping support that would be very useful. So, you know, people sometimes give us charitable contributions. And so that's always mm-hmm. well. Sure. People tell their, tell their legislated, uh, their elected legislators that, oh, you know, these guys are helping us. And that's always, you know, getting a shout out on Twitter or on Facebook or sure. uh, any other social media that's helpful. Okay. Because ultimately, the science that gets funded is the science that helps people, but it's also the science that people hear about and know about. Sure. Right. And, and I think that's a good note to folks, you know, again, like you said, Congress has been surprisingly and effectively supportive uh, of science, even even despite the, the pushback from the administration. So uh, that doesn't mean you don't need to call your representative. That means call your representative and thank them right. for doing what they're doing and, and encourage them so they don't feel like uh, they're they're left out in the cold with all the other shit going on. So you know, thank them for their their long term vision and for for focusing on what's good. And if you have a personal story, uh, tell it. Whatever helps these people feel like they can do even more is 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 important. And 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 personally, you know, obviously knowing there's uh, still so much to uncover, and, and you know, we're very early on. Do you do you have any uh, guidance on what uh, the rest of us should be doing to put our ourselves and our gut and our, our our poop in the in the best place to to succeed? Should something like this come our way? People often ask, you know, um, is there a diet that I should I should be following? Right. You know, Please tell me what I to eat, eat, doctor. Basically, should I, is what yeah, I'm asking. Should I should I not eat sugar? Should I not eat this? And you know, you know what's kind of crazy is that you know we're in the midst of doing a lot of very deeply analyzing dietary histories and stuff like that to try and get a sense as to as to what's important and what's not important. But one of the early things that we've found out is that if you go back to the last 10 to 15 years of nutritional data, there's some there, there are lots of data points that suggest that that certain dietary elements are very important. And mm-hmm. when you break these down and you look at those in, in, in isolation, you know, it appears that taking a high a high fiber diet appears to be important. Eating a little bit Eating less meat, red meat, appears mm-hmm. to be important. Mm-hmm. The intake of omega three polyunsaturated fat, uh, polyunsaturated fats, and omega three fatty acids appears to be important. Mm-hmm. Uh, exercise appears to be important, but you know, let's 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 stop there for a minute and think about that, right? So, eating less red meat, eating polyunsaturated fatty acids and omega threes, and high fiber, and not eating too much. I mean, it's kind of commonsensical, right? That's it. Right. people want Seems to you, you would think so. <laughs> right. So, so what's, what's interesting is that we're really rediscovering old truths at this point. Sure. And sure. what we're just, you know, I'm, I'm covering what I think is a scientific basis for things that were either commonsensical uh, all along, but we are identifying that a, there is a rational basis to be doing things that people, most people, all along knew to be true anyway. And that if you eat, you know, 
a 24-inch pie every day of the week, it's probably not a good thing. Whether it's because <laughs> okay, it's bad for you, or it's bad for <laughs> it's bad for your gut microbiome, I don't know. But the point is, right. it's probably not helpful. Right. Yeah, regardless, <laughs> it's probably not helpful. Well, that's uh, you're right. It is. It it almost is like we're we're taking a step back to going like, oh, do this, do this, and this. And there's this great food and sort of culture and health writer Michael Pollan. Uh, and his famous quote is, I think it's, um, it's really short. It's eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Mostly plants. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it just, you know, look, you can, you can ask all the questions you want about the microbiome and whether it's going to help you not get cancer or fight off cancer, but it's like, as well as everything else and all of our other issues, just, just, uh, you know, eat real food, uh, that comes out of the ground, not too much of it, uh, plants and, and, and you'll be on the whole in a better place. Uh, and not to mention an entirely different conversation. The environment will be yeah. will be in a much better place. Wow. Hey, really, I have a really quick question. Uh, it, it, did it ever? Did you ever figure out why those mice in Jackson were just in right off the bat better at? at what, yeah. What were they it's, exposed it's, to? No, no. They 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 have different microbial species. That's just that's yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a microbial species. That's why it's transmittable. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, so if you had if, if, if you had to be a mouse. And there's no reason for it, really. They just that's just they just have a different species. Just, just better bugs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Better, better bugs. bugs. You know, but, but you know, if you think about it, you know, there there are certain populations, you know, on Earth where where um, just by virtue of being born there, you tend to live longer, right? right? right, right. And and it's very interesting. There's there's a socioeconomic reason for this. There's a demographic reason for this. But what's fascinating is that so much of what is considered socioeconomic. Is also biological, right? Sure. In that, you know, what is the Mediterranean diet, right? So the Mediterranean diet is is a certain thing, but you don't have to live in the Mediterranean area to adopt a Mediterranean diet. Right, right, right. Right. It just so happens that the people who live there, you know, kind of do, but sure. you don't have to. And <laughs> sure. so, what's what's interesting is that it, it 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 suggests that a lot of these geographical differences and ethnodemographic differences that we attribute to certain factors. Are actually mutable. They're not immutable. Sure. Yep. Man, that's wild. Awesome. Well, uh, uh, Doctor, thank you so so much for uh, for being here and talking with us today. We're I know we've had you on for a bit, and uh, we'll we'll wrap it up with just the last few questions. But we really really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. This has been very enlightening for for all of us. I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, so, Doctor, sort of a lightning round here. Uh, slightly off topic. Slightly now, a little more meta. Doctor, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Well, the power of change was was relatively early, I guess. I mean, I'm South Asian. So if you have Indian parents and you try and say no to something they want you to do, you just get hit. That's <laughs> right. something unique. White people don't beat their kids, Indian parents do. Right. So I realized very early on that if I pissed my parents off, things weren't going to go too well. So sure. as far as change went, I am many things, but it's, again, primarily because... I I've always had this idea, you know, to try and you know, make a difference in, in in what we do and take care of patients. But it really comes from a, a fairly young age. You know, my parents are fairly influential in in getting me to choose this path. As as for second question, I think in science, it you know you are a lot of who your mentor is, mm-hmm. and uh, the mentorship issue in science is something that is is it's very well known and but it's also at the same time not necessarily as well recognized because 
we, we tend to ascribe a lot to individuals, but the truth is it's never just one guy. It's always a group and it's all, it's never just that guy. It's always you know, sure. what he learned from the people that we learn from. And so in our case, you know, these, this is, you know, maybe me talking, but the, the person who actually is driving a lot of this, especially the guy that I work with, and he's a very influential human cancer immunologist, and his name is Hassan Zoror. And he's been, you know, sort of front and center in, in, in uh, the development of novel immune therapies mm-hmm. and uh, biological discoveries that have made huge differences in uh, the treatment of cancer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you're a cancer patient, you may not necessarily know who he is, but uh, if you're a cancer patient who's receiving a PD-1 immunotherapy, he's one, no, again, not the only one, but definitely amongst the first to have shown this is an effective treatment for patients long before the clinical trials were actually done. Sure. And it's thanks to him that, that, you know, we've got a lot of the work that we've done done because you need people with tremendous ideas and then you can translate those ideas into discoveries and but all of that stems from people that you work with in this collegial environment that one is in. So really, I think a lot of what we do is, is due to where we're at and, and the environment that one is in, but also the influence of one's mentors. I love that. Yeah, yeah that's an awesome answer. Mentorship. No, nobody is uh, too good. No man is an island, right? Yeah, no, right. no, 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 no human is too good for a, a good mentor in their life. It makes a huge difference. I'm lucky to have a few of those myself. This uh, field you work in... Seems like it could be overwhelming at times. When it is, doctor, what do you do to yeah, uh, spe- specifically? Yeah. How do you vent? I talk to my wife. She's very. She's a lawyer. She's very good at keeping it clear. <laughs> she actually used to be in politics. She was actually. Uh, she worked on Ted Strickland's finance campaign, and so she's. She worked on Ted Strickland's campaign as his finance director. And, gotcha. Uh, she was in politics, and then she was a lawyer. She is a lawyer. She helps keep it real. You know, she helps. You know, especially when I when I when I, when I get a little too serious. Sure. Another yeah. another great uh, person to have, not only a mentor, but the person you know every time when you need to talk, you can go to that person and depend on them. Pretty yeah. great. How do you consume the news, Doctor Devar? Actually, we don't have a TV. Oh, nice. I like that. Great call. We, we neither my wife. I mean, we don't have a TV at home, and we don't have a cable subscription. So I think we're limited to what we read and what you hear at work and. So, yeah, I, I primarily consume the news through you know, my phone, but we don't have a TV. Love it. Yeah, that's great. So Brian's got his last, last question, favorite question. Last question, favorite question. Doc, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what book would that be? One of the books that I found most interesting is actually several of the books by Atul Gawande and Siddhartha Mukherjee. But, uh, you know, because, you know, they're, they're physicians who write for, you know, a lay audience. Right, but I I sent him uh, Atul Gawande's book. It's not the newest one; it's the one that he wrote in 2014, and it's uh, called "Being Mortal." Right, and it's 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 uh, it's it's a very interesting book that addresses uh, hospice care. The reason it's important is because so much of what we think is important in science, like you know, we're so happy that the NCI is funding the NCI is funding research in cancer and this and that and whatnot. And that's very important, you know, like cancer drugs sell and they make companies make billions of dollars based on stuff that sells. Sure. But these things ultimately help small groups of a select select few groups of people. Sure. What's you know, what Atul Gawande writes about in the immortal is that the one thing that is a certainty for for every human is that, you know, 
human existence is by definition term, like everybody is guaranteed death and taxes, right? And what he talks about is that is that age-related frailty, age-related illness, cancer is something that in this country, especially, that we've often overlooked. You know, we spend so much money on advances in cancer care. And, and you know, make no mistake, I'm, you know, my, my research depends on that funding. That's right. But how much of what we do, you know, as we're doing it, do we ignore things that are very important? You know, how much time is spent contemplating death? How much time is spent ensuring that, that people who are going to die, die well? Yeah, we, do, we don't do a very good job of that in this no, country. We, we don't. We don't. And, and it's, it's tragic because it happens on so many different levels. It happens because patients sometimes don't realize that, uh, you know, doctors sometimes don't realize when enough is enough. Patients aren't sometimes told that uh, they have access to facilities such as hospice and hospice care. Uh, and uh, sometimes in certain parts of the country, because of issues to do with access to care, hospice facilities aren't available. They aren't necess- hospice doctors aren't necessarily as well remunerated as other doctors. And right. having this conversation isn't something that isn't, that isn't necessarily as emphasized as, as it should be because of you know, reimbursement models and stuff like that. So the point is that, that as as important as the work we do is, and we're trying to you know cure cancer and make make sure that everybody dies of old age rather than cancer, we also need to realize that when when these things don't work, uh, we need to ensure that patients have the opportunity to die with dignity. It does involve access to some of these services in palliative care that in our culture of cure isn't necessarily sometimes as well emphasized and often overlooked. Yeah, I, I really I, I love all his writing. It's a uh, that is a fantastic book and, and definitely an alternative viewpoint that, that we need to start at least talking about more and instituting more. I, I've been trying to get Brian to read uh, his other book, The Checklist Manifesto, for about two years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's also a very good book. Yeah, I hear it's, it's good, yeah. It, it's a hell of a book. Uh, well, Dr. Devar, we can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been super enlightening for all of us and, and hopeful and inspiring and a little mind-blowing. Uh, I know we have <laughs> a very, very long way to go, but we appreciate having folks like you do, doing the work every day uh, with such a well-considered perspective. Oh, yeah. Uh, no problem. Thank you for having us. Yeah, of course. And we will uh, we'll follow up with you at, at, uh, at some point down the road to see how everything's going. Of course. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, doctor. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye. All right, you thanks. too. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.